So there is a time... Time of real, I think? There is a time of real sword... For the Mundangerous Source Holdings in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 128 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're continuing our series on campaign settings, and we're talking about Birthright. But first, the rogue traders make a break for it in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Rove Manslayer takes misanthropy to a whole new level in the Character Creation Forge. So, dear listener, If you are a Patreon subscriber or are thinking about becoming a Patreon subscriber, you may have noticed that our next goal at $300 is kind of crap. Yeah, so originally it seemed like a good idea to give ratings to Unearthed Arcana. Uh, That was something that was asked for a decent amount when we first started doing Unearthed Arcana reviews. And then they published Xanathar's Guide, which rewrote a lot of Unearthed Arcana already. So you don't need us to tell you if the old stuff is good or bad. Just don't use it. Right. (laughs) Uh, And there's probably not going to be enough new stuff, or at least there hasn't been yet, to really justify it. Uh, So that might come back on at a later point. But for now, uh, we're thinking of a new Patreon goal. So we have been doing these campaign setting episodes for a while now. Uh, You seem to enjoy them. But you may have noticed that we haven't ever covered perhaps the most popular campaign setting for Dungeons & Dragons, Ed Greenwood's Forgotten Realms. That's because we like to be positive. Yeah, we don't want to rag on it for an hour or an hour and a half because we don't really like it. Right, and rather than yuck your yums, we would rather just ignore it. But I'll tell you what, uh, I think we can be positive about it. At least uh, we can be, I don't know, funny and happy about it while we make fun of it. Okay, (laughs) sure. (laughs) There's, you know, there's a lot to critique. (laughs) so if you get us to $300 per month on Patreon then we will do the Forgotten Realms campaign setting for you so if that is something you would like to hear for some reason then consider giving just a few bucks a month uh, on Patreon $5 a month gets you a button uh, which uh, I know my mother was very uh, protective over and for $10 a month, uh, we you will join our t-shirt club. And there are higher things too, but nobody ever gives to them, so I don't know them offhand. Uh, $20 a month for three months in a row, and we'll read something that you write. Anything that you write. Or anything that we wrote in the past. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will I, read Ishan's live journal. Oh, man. I, I do have an old blog from 2008. Um Ooh, slash fiction. Someone could write that. It would need to be short. I mean, it can't be too long, but it can be pretty much anything. Yeah. yeah. We'll just bleep the shit out of it. <laughs> Say that without me having to bleep that. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of bleeping things, because they're inappropriate for anyone to listen to. Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games, and the Rogue Traders of the His Enduring Light have just interrupted three Chaos Space Marines stealing a holy Imperial Reliquary from the stricken Chartist vessel Ambition. Oh, Reliquarius Interruptus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This, uh, you believe to be the secret special cargo that the uh, Ambition was carrying when it was sabotaged. Uh, presumably by agents of these space marines. Fortunately, the space marines have given up on the cargo and have decided, well, two of them are dead. Yeah, so they gave up on it uh, (laughs) because they died. But Because you shot them. (laughs) Yes, many times. But the sergeant has is now ignoring the cargo, has uh, tossed aside Draco's dead body, uh, blown out a window of the chapel with his bolter and some crack grenades. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and now the entire chapel is decompressing, and he is about to leap out into space. And at just about the same time, the Laud Hailers aboard the Ambition come to life, and they begin 
a terrible, fearful chant. Uh, Ravager, Ravager, Ravager. Over and over and over. And you receive notice that a Chaos Reaver has just entered from the warp. That's probably just a coincidence, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) So, you know time is running out, and Trank thinks pretty quick. Well, yeah, his mind goes to the one thing he's good at, which is shooting things. So, as the sergeant is trying to leap out of the chapel window, he takes aim with his trusty pulse rifle and blasts the sergeant's leg. Then he runs over to Draco's body, notices that he seems pretty, pretty dead. Mm Mm-hmm. And shoots the sergeant again. Yeah, double tap. <laughs> uh, this time, the the shots really seem to land, and I'm pretty sure his like head starts. His head catches on fire. Mm, yeah, something like that. Happens. Yeah, that made me happy. That was good. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how it would catch on fire in empty void, but yeah, sure. Well, when you look on the crit tables, <laughs> it says his head catches on fire. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so. Poor word bear chaos space marine sergeant Halalaz uh, presumably has met his end. Presumably, probably just in advance of the rogue traders of the his enduring light. <laughs> because while you grab Draco's body and start beelining it for the exit, Doc and Captain Zarkov, who is filling in for your nearly dead Seneschal tricks, uh, both attempt to retrieve the reliquary before it too is lost in void space to be retrieved by the Ravager. And they find that it is very heavy. Uh, you know, I, they are struggling to to carry it, but not so heavy that it would require two Chaos Space Marines who could barely muscle it. Yeah, fortunately, two pretty beefy dudes can move it with some effort. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like because they are loyal Imperial citizens that uh, the reliquary recognizes them and allows them to move it. Wait, so how could Doc move it? <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Maybe the reliquary is like, oh, I mean, good enough. It's not great. <laughs> well, you're close. <laughs> well, Doc hasn't really come into his form yet. That's right. <laughs> oh, He's his still final dabbling form. in heresy. <laughs> he hasn't quite embraced uh, chaos. And aren't we all... <laughs> Or perhaps Captain Zarkov's uh, pure heart just overshadows Doc. Oh, yes, his bright, shining heart. It's like a, like a new potato. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> has yet to sprout a, a little <laughs> bit of heresy. Now, Echo and Flare, our psyker, are still in the outer reaches of the chapel, so Echo decides to hack a cogitator terminal and get the blast shielding uh, online to seal the uh, windows. Right, because uh, if you recall, after the ship was sabotaged, you didn't bring power fully online. Uh, You kind of just brought the power that you needed to do what you needed to do. And you did not expect for, you know, any odd breaches in the windows to occur. So she she starts doing that, and Flair is paralyzed with, uh, with fear from the fear test that he failed, frankly, as the Ravager took over your Laudhalers. So he can barely do anything, but does manage to get his wits about him enough to instruct the rest of the crew to prepare the hostile negotiator to leave, and also for the his enduring light to uh, start spinning up its warp drive so that they can escape. But Echo isn't having any luck booting up the blast shields, so Doc, Zarkov, and Trank all try to manually shut and seal the chapel doors. Um, You know, the chapel doors on the outside. Right. That... <laughs> That would. You're trying to pull them shut, and they are being pulled into the room. <laughs> because Imperial chapels, the doors open inward, so that you can kick them dramatically. <laughs> it's getting really difficult because one, the chapel doors are giant and heavy. Because this is the Imperium, that's how we roll, right? And also, oxygen is very sparse, and the vacuum is not having any of this, right? So it's it's a race. Uh, you know that you will not be able to survive this forever you will eventually lose your grip uh imminently lose your grip even oh yeah like a round and a half from now yeah Yeah. like in in like 20 to 30 seconds it's over uh and meanwhile you know echo is just trying to get this hacked and she's under extreme pressure and you know flair is freaking out and babbling to himself next to her and distracting her and uh and it really looks like dire straits for our heroes so shane this is a, a now or never moment right oh it is who plays echo Steph plays Echo. Oh, right. So, of course, what happens? Well, your grips start to fail, slip, 
You begin tumbling into the chapel towards that fateful window. And finally, Echo succeeds on the last the last step that she needed to close the blast doors. They slam shut. Uh, you know, as you lose your grip, as you start to, you know, face your fate, you are saved. I mean, temporarily. The Ravager is still there and presumably going to attack you. So, Oh, certainly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, she just resets the timer, really, for you guys to run. Also, Draco's still in bad shape. Also, Draco is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you pick up the pieces of Draco. <laughs> and Hightail at two, the His Enduring Light, deciding that discretion is, as always, the better part of Valor. Well, your, your Valor. Yes, we get the hell out. Yeah, so you make a series of warp jumps trying to shake the Ravager so it can't track your wake, and then you uh, head to the Ambition's prescribed meeting point. Obviously, you have abandoned the Ambition, but uh, hopefully you will meet up with Roth's men. We've got the cargo. You do. And all of our crew. Well, most of our The important crew. Some of their crew. (laughs) (laughs) All of... Well, all the survivors of your crew. Right, yeah. Most of your armsmen. (laughs) Yep, we left behind um, part of Draco's neck right. and all of uh, Trix's intestines. Uh, all of his blood, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and we'll find out what happens when we actually deliver the cargo next week. So this week, we are continuing our campaign setting series with Birthright, which is perhaps the most obscure setting that we've yet covered. Yeah, although it's probably the most requested one that we've gotten thus far. I think that some people wanted to hear Planescape, uh, but multiple people have asked for Birthright, probably because you don't get a whole lot of coverage of Birthright. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe it was just Rudy seven times. I think it was Rudy seven <laughs> times, yeah. Because Rudy and I got really excited that he played uh, Birthright Gorgon's Alliance. <laughs> well, this one's for you, Rudy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think you can find Rudy's Birthright Gorgon's Alliance video game review on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. We'll put a link in the show notes. All right, so Shane, give us the elevator pitch for Birthright. So Birthright is a traditional fantasy setting where player characters are nobles who have inherited a spark of divine power passed down through deific bloodlines. And then it's also a setting where wielding the levers of power like taxation or royal decrees or going to war is as important as wielding swords and spells. It's the great game. Tolkien style. Ah, uh, yes. It's uh, like Risk. Like playing Risk, but with role-playing. It's like playing Diplomacy. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but with realm spells. But with mana. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow fewer friends. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you even angrier. Right. <laughs> All right, so a little history. Um, it's an AD&D campaign setting. We do seem to have a penchant for those. Uh, created by... A man you may have heard of, Rich Baker. You should have heard of, named Rich Baker. And then also Colin McComb, who did a bunch of work on, you know, uh, Dark Sun and a lot on Planescape. And it was released in 1995, which was a bit of a surprise to me. I thought it was a little older than that. Yeah, me too, actually. So like Planescape and Dark Sun, the line quickly expanded with a bunch of splat books, um, a whole like player's secret series that was focused, uh, each book focused on a different country. You got a book, that had rules for naval battles there were books just on uh, different enemies a whole bunch of novels and as shane mentioned the 1997 video game gorgon's alliance i believe that one was published by sierra and that really says all you need to know about it hey king's quest 1 through 14 those were good uh no i think you mean quest for glory was good king's quest was garbage (laughs) did they do black cauldron was that them I don't know that one. Uh, uh, I do know Lords of the Realm and Lords of the Realm 2, which were also moderately playable oh, games. Dear Lord. How, so Gorgon's Alliance was bad, yes? It was not good. <laughs> In terms of gameplay or like... It was not good. Okay. <laughs> so um, Birthright ended pretty unceremoniously with the death of second edition when Wizards of the Coast oh, bought out TSR. The death of TSR. Yeah. <laughs> uh, In 1999 slash 2000. And it hasn't been updated since. No third, fourth, or fifth edition versions of it. Just fan-made adaptations. Mm-hmm. Which actually is... We're, we're playing a fifth edition. It's how we're playing it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the setting itself. 
Yeah, it takes place on a world called Abrinus. Uh, although I had no idea that the planet was called Abrinus until I looked it up. I'm suspicious that that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> well, okay. There's a lot of Gaelic. Uh, yeah, there's a lot it, of Gaelic it, and Welsh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, we neither of us speaks that. So we're just going to kind of go with it. But all of the action really centers on one of four continents, Cerulea, which was originally inhabited by elves, dwarves, uh, some monstrous races, and humans emigrated from the south thousands of years ago. And they had this unique ability that no one else had, divine magic, because only the humans had gods. So this advantage helped them spread all across the new continent, and that also made them some enemies mainly the elves who weren't so happy with, you know, the humans who were basically smart, tall goblins to them. So corrupted by one of those gods, the dark god Azrai, the elves, along with uh, one of the six human tribes, waged war against all of the other races. And it took the combined sacrifice of all of the other human gods at the Battle of uh, Mount Desmar to defeat them. So here's where the setting gets super cool. When the old gods, including Azrai, died... They exploded in divine essence, and it elevated some of their followers to godhood and implanted seeds of divinity into others. So warriors who were present at the battle just randomly became deific. And then in the 2,000 years since that uh, War of Shadow, descendants of the veterans of Mount Deismar have become the nobility of the nations on Cerulea. So their divine connection to the land grants them unique abilities of, like, leadership or power, realm magic, you know, world-changing super spells. Yeah, so you play one of these nobles. Players end up controlling entire countries or provinces uh, rather than just their one character or, you know, um, the, the party itself. Right. So they'll levy taxes, they'll build castles and palaces, they'll run churches and guilds conduct diplomatic negotiations with foreign powers, wage war, and they'll have to deal with natural disasters that happen within their realm. Or other just random bad things. <laughs> yeah, or ignore them. <laughs> yeah, as, as we have done all too often. <laughs> yeah, you know what costs money? <laughs> Fixing this. <laughs> so they end up needing to consolidate power over their realm in order to hold back invasion, uh, whether that is military invasion or economic. And they have to defend their people from enemy regions, as well as the Odenshalen, horrible monsters, uh, marauding elves, or goblins, or tribes of orogs in the mountains. And regions are not the only inheritors of divine power. So traditional D&D monsters are uh, unique creatures in Cerulea. They're basically like twisted into inhuman forms by the blood of Azrai. So for example, the Gorgon the Hydra, the Kraken, the Vampire, all of these are specific people, not races. Right. They were human or maybe an elf or a goblin or something that has um, absorbed the divine essence of the evil god Azrai and has now turned into misshapen, horrible monsters. Right. Which you will almost certainly encounter and attempt to kill. Yeah, hopefully. Also, magic is rare, it is difficult to perform, and it is extremely powerful. So the traditional schools of illusion and divination can be learned by anyone who studies them. But all of the other schools of magic are only available to people who are blooded, people who have some spark of divine essence. And only regents, that is blooded people who uh, also have a hereditary title, which is your PCs essentially, uh, can use realm magic, which affects entire cities or armies or whole provinces. As we mentioned, this divinity is passed through your bloodline, but naturally there is also a way to uh, steal from a bloodline, usually by killing the person who possesses it. Yes. Kill them by uh, stabbing them in the heart, in the heart with yeah. a piercing weapon. Or using one of the like special weapons oh, yeah, that uh -huh. eats, their, eats their blood. We'll get into that. Okay, so if you were going to play a birthright campaign, what are some themes that it will likely touch on divine right of rulership uh, very war of the roses kind of situation here there's no paupers there's no rags to riches heroes don't come from the slums and prove themselves uh, you have the literal mandate of heaven you can demonstrate it by your magic and uh, people literally follow you because of that so your character was born into privilege and needs to fight to stay there 
Yeah, this is not the beginning of Star Wars where you think Luke Skywalker is just some random kid who suddenly has force powers. It is the end of Star Wars when you realize, oh, no, he was destined to do this because of his bloodline. Right. So this basically means like that normal amounts of money don't matter. You know, like in the early stages of most D&D campaigns, you're like, oh, yeah, we got 120 gold pieces and we are filthy rich. Yeah, like you don't go clear mines of goblins <laughs> like, no you've got people for that yeah your treasury is calculated in gold bars not gold coins like you start the game and if you need non-magical gear uh you have it, it whether that's horses or like a sailing ship yeah you you spend two thousand gold pieces to move between provinces because you've got to bring so many attendants yeah you got an entourage. yeah <laughs> Right, it's like, oh, do I? Can I afford plate armor? Yeah, yep. uh, your great 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 grandfather has plate armor, exactly, <laughs> and it's yours, along with this castle. Right, exactly. Yep, and you can build more if you want because you're getting taxes in gold. Right. So speaking of you know your ancestors and having hereditary items and titles, uh, a birthright campaign is also going to force PCs to take the long view, and I think this is something that doesn't often happen with usual player characters you're usually focused on okay what happens tomorrow because it's quite possible we die what do you mean tomorrow i'm, I'm focused on like what's going to happen when you ambush us tonight when we make camp <laughs> right <laughs> why do i have to sleep i'm focused on do i have time for a short rest can i sleep in my armor but in birthright most of the action or what we would call action takes place in what are called domain rounds and domain turns and that is months or seasons instead of seconds or minutes. Yeah, this is also one of the rare gaming settings where your lifespan might actually matter. <laughs> that might actually be a, a a time limit for your character because, you know, you can easily play through a few years in a few sessions. Yeah, I think uh, it really sort of hit home for me. One of, my, one of my favorite points is when we were starting our Birthright game and Steph was deciding how old her character was. And she's like, oh, I think I'm like 50. You know, I'm a seasoned warrior. I'm a general. I've risen through the ranks. And Jim, the, the GM, was like, uh, maybe <laughs> younger. That gives you 40 turns. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you have 40 seasons uh, right you i really hope you have children yeah because you're gonna need them <laughs> right uh and and that's cool too because uh a campaign can follow your character's descendants long after your original character is dead and and it's kind of the point is okay you have children and then eventually at some point you sort of like hop characters over whether if your first character dies either of old age or you know murdered in their sleep you just start playing the descendant or their heir mm-hmm that's actually, this is, I think, the first, maybe the first RPG, certainly the first D&D game where I have ever thought to myself, you know, the optimal thing for me to do right now is to go have a kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me while I take valuable time to designate my heir. Right. <laughs> because as, I'm, as far as <laughs> most of my characters are concerned, this story ends with their death. <laughs> yeah, I'm like... I'm I'm seriously sitting here and going, oh man, uh, I'm not even married yet. Like, okay, well I can't have when an am, illegitimate kid. When am I going to have time to find a wife? <laughs> <laughs> right, I have to defend the realm. Right. <laughs> I know I'm going to send out a servant to go find me a wife. Now I understand how courtiers work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and really, that uh, is sort of the the main emphasis. I think the main tension in a birthright campaign. There's never enough time to do everything that you want to do. Because in most uh, RPGs, the precious resources are your hit points or your spell slots or how many clips of ammunition you have. In Birthright, it's the action economy that's paramount. Yeah, on your turn uh, or, or for this month, are you going to you know build holdings? Are you going to increase or save your province's loyalty? Are you going to designate an heir or are you going to send your army to, you know, confront the invaders? Are you going to research realm spells or travel to a wedding in another country? Because that's just as important because, man, they're going to be pissed if you don't come to the wedding. Yeah, yeah. You got to make an appearance, <laughs> especially if you want that trade deal to go down. Right. With, uh, you know, the the bride's father. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's one of my favorite things about about. The setting, right, is, okay, I didn't I didn't go to a party. That's probably a minus four to my diplomacy check. Right, yeah. 
So since you can't do everything yourself, you have to end up appointing trusted lieutenants. But you've got to figure out who you can trust. Is it your family? I mean, those are the ones who are most likely to um, get more power if you die. So maybe they're not the best ones. Is it other regions who you have treaties with and other nations? Uh, maybe, but it's also quite possible that they're going to renege on your deal as well. Maybe the army, but they're only really loyal as long as you pay them. So another recurring theme is that power is naturally corrupting. The Onshalen <laughs> are literally twisted by Azrai's blood, but they gain great power and basically become immortal. Even the powerful good creatures are changed by that power. So the, the alternative is the air Shalin, who are like Pegasus. Right, the Pegasus. There's one Pegasus. It's like a person who um, has a, an extremely powerful bloodline, but not from uh, Azrai, from one of the good deities. Right. But using their blood abilities eventually changes their form and now... You know, years and centuries later, the Pegasus has turned from a person into a flying winged horse. Right. Uh, and then also, as your bloodline increases, you gain blooded abilities that can give you things like an aura of charm or an aura of fear or make you immune to certain kinds of magic. And one of the sort of tasks that you need to undertake is improving your bloodline. And that is basically through, like, spending the regency that you uh, obtain from just rulership, uh, you know, month after month. But there are shortcuts to power. Like you mentioned, Shane, you can murder someone by stabbing them in the heart and steal some of their bloodline. And mm -hmm. that is absolutely the fastest way to increase your bloodline. Right. And it isn't even super frowned upon. <laughs> like, well, it depends on who you're talking to. It depends on who you're stabbing, really. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course, it's possible if they are derived from Azrai and you steal some of their power, you might become tainted by Azrai. Yeah, that's that's a fun thing. It's like one drop of Azrai and you run the risk of tainted. Doesn't matter what you've done your whole rest of your life, one drop. That's right, and there's no way to get rid of it. You, some things you can't wash off. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You'll also feel like a small fish in a big pond, a very big pond. There are a lot of nations on Cerulea, and usually you're not running one of the bigger ones. So, like, there's no reasonable way to defeat the most powerful on Shalin. Uh, and there's no way that you can, you know, as the ruler of a small country, invade Borun. Borun? It's, it's probably pronounced Warin. like bovine. Sure. <laughs> because, of course, it has an O, E, an R, a U, and an I. <laughs> Random V sounds. So you got to work your way up to that. You start, um, even though you are extraordinarily powerful compared to a regular D&D &D character, you are very weak in the setting. Right. Which means that alliances are the key to the setting. It's about uh, finding friends and recruiting them to your side and, you know, uh, trading favors and trading agreements, which is why I said it's like diplomacy, because nothing in the game holds you to those agreements other than, you know, the, the future risk of being betrayed. Yeah, see, that's why you need to have as many children as possible so that you have more chips to play. Right. <laughs> okay, so for those of you who have been convinced and now want to play in a birthright campaign, let's go through maybe a few plot hooks that you can toss out either for your players or maybe that you can instigate yourself as a blooded regent i like um shadows of empire so maybe the regent of avenil which is one of the larger more powerful nations that are uh, a remnant of the old Enwirian empire that used to cover about half the continent uh maybe he's gotten a little uppity and decided to de declare himself the new emperor of Anwir. Of course, there are other very large nations that think that they deserve the crown more. Like Borvin or whatever. Boerun? Boarval. Maybe the Baron of Gore. Maybe the Baron of Gore. So the big nations are angry, and of course all the small nations are terrified of a continent-spanning war. And in this case, the players are almost certainly some of those small nations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So are they banding together to try to stand up to Avenil? Are they trying to assume as much power drafting behind Avenil and then, you know, maybe hope to usurp Avenil at the last moment? Uh, do they side very quickly with um, 
another large nation and support them instead for the crown, hoping that nobody really gets it. Do they declare themselves Swiss (laughs) and hope that holds? (laughs) Large gold reserves. That's what you need. And and Great privacy laws. (laughs) We will hold your blood in the utmost confidence. This is a no-scry zone. (laughs) Or, I mean, you can, in a birthright game, take it out of the macro level and say... I am an accomplished adventurer. Uh, we're going to sneak into Avenil and murder the regent. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, hire people to do that. Right. That's probably easier. Then deal with the fallout. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it works. Great. I mean, if it does, then you've got the crown jewels of Avenil. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so another plot hook. Let's call this one the silver sword. There is a time of real sword that has fallen into the hands of an ambitious, blooded noble who isn't afraid to use it. Now, time of real is a special uh, metal that aids in blood theft. Yeah. So uh, from a mechanical perspective, you stab someone in the heart, uh, you steal some of their bloodline, you get you raise your bloodline by one or two points right. uh, on a scale of, I guess it's zero to infinity, really. Yeah, but, but usually you start around like 20-ish. Yeah, um, but one or two is a, is a fair amount. It takes you a while to like build that up. Mm-hmm. When you've got a time reveal weapon and you stab somebody in the heart, you gain uh, bloodline equal to half of their bloodline. Yeah, which is I don't know, could be forty. It's it's a pretty pretty well insulated blood theft. Yeah, <laughs> you're not losing so much to heat in and the you, transfer, and you gain it immediately. So what happens in birthright is what when you gain all of that uh, bloodline. You immediately roll to see if you gain a bunch of abilities. You could be in the middle of battle, stab someone in the heart, and suddenly you have a charm aura, a fear aura. You're immune to non-magical weapons. Mm -hmm. So this means if there's a noble who is uh, taking a time reveal sword and using it, that every region is in danger. Even a casual conversation could put your life in peril. And what happens to the sword when the noble is finally taken down? Yeah, I think there are canonically 12 of these weapons on the entire continent. Like, they can't be made anymore. They're like 3,000 years old. Obviously, they can't be destroyed. Yeah. Um, Who watches over this thing? Uh, What if you're the one who defeats this noble? You are now holding the one thing that can increase bloodline faster than anything else. And also make you a target. Yeah. I mean, I keep it. I keep it, obviously. Right. Yeah. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to put it in a display case in my castle so everyone knows how awesome I am. See how that goes for you. Probably not well. I am not a wizard, nor am I bright. So this next one um, maybe is hold your peace, I guess I might call it. Maybe the regent of a historical enemy of your country is seeking to marry off one of their kids into the line of Endier. That will ensure that your enemy will become an economic powerhouse in the years to come because Endier, while a small nation, is uh, well connected with the guild system. Yeah, very Swiss. So do you try to stop this engagement with diplomacy? Or do you just use any means necessary? Or, of course, my favorite, maybe you've got a suitable heir who would make a better match. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the timelines of it, you could uh, you could say, all right... Um, I could have a kid now and you know what 16 years I guess before they're marriageable mm-hmm. but I just need to delay the engagement long enough by 16 years <laughs> but hey that's not a uh, that's not all that long right yeah. uh, May December relationships are common in this time period it's, it's time to <laughs> launch a grand crusade <laughs> back in 20 <laughs> Uh, so a plot hook for regents who have no heirs, um, you know, maybe advisors have decided that it's too dangerous for them to adventure uh, until they have secured their line of succession. So you have to uh, seek out a worthy heir uh, to inherit your kingdom or your uh, country. This is basically um, the plot of the Santa Claus 2, I think. Oh, nice. Nice yeah, pull. Thank you. I thank almost you. had to watch that movie. <laughs> really? Recently. <laughs> Why? Well, I watched The Santa Claus and it was on immediately afterwards. Oh, okay. But you saved yourself and yeah, changed the that, channel. Yeah, because that film was garbage. <laughs> now, listen, I like Scott Calvin, all right? But I'm not going to sit through a second movie. <laughs> Scott Calvin's fine. Tim Allen, that guy's garbage. <laughs> 
Tim Taylor, though. Tim Taylor, I like. Right. <laughs> the, the tool time. Okay. <laughs> you look a little bit like Al right now. Oh, Just thanks. a little. Thanks. I got a beard. Yeah. And last, maybe there's a new Anshay, and it's marauding in rural provinces in your country. What kind of weird, strange powers does it have? Nobody knows, right? These are unique creatures. It's got a name. I, I like that you can just leaf through the monster manual and be like, what uh, what creature do I want to introduce? And mm-hmm. nobody has any idea what this thing can do. Yeah, and also, like, Anshe don't have to be insane. They can be very coherent and cogent and plotting and malevolent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are definitely corrupted, but that doesn't mean there's only one way to address them. So... Uh, they may come and offer a bargain, right? I mean, they may offer to even aid you in the process. No, it's very Maleficent. Oh. I'd like to give you a gift. <laughs> sure. I suggest you accept it. Um, yeah, I think this is probably one of the more common plot hooks just because it's an easy thing to just, you know, throw into basically any game is like, oh, great, one of these really powerful entities has appeared. How are you going to deal with it? Yeah. Um spoiler if i ever run a birthright game and you're playing in it you're gonna meet the bulet oh yeah i don't know what it's gonna do but it's probably gonna just like burst out of the floor in your in your palace oh yeah and then like charge you immediately into a wall and be like your time of real sword can't hurt me i'm the bulet (laughs) (laughs) why did i keep it in a display case (laughs) you should sleep with it you always sleep with it All right, so we haven't talked too much about the mechanics of Birthright. Uh, they are very uh, reminiscent of second edition. Uh, they relied heavily on the optional skill proficiency rules, which were not nearly as developed or integral uh, back then as they are in third and future editions. So the, it doesn't age real well because it doesn't really um, accommodate more of the like narrative elements that we kind of take for granted nowadays Mm -hmm. Uh, it is basically a long list of actions that you can take and associated costs of regency or gold to perform them it is nice though to have that information um as a guideline for running a game because okay so there are ports right there are third edition and fourth edition DD ports we're playing uh based on a fifth edition conversion um, but if you were if you were going to play this sort of outside of D and D, it is possible to sort of look at the old material and go, okay, here are the here are the actions that are codified. Um, they're the kind of uh, court diplomacy decrees, building, mustering an army, those type, sorts of things that uh, a well fleshed out macro level game is going to have anyway. Uh, it just has, like Shane said, associated costs of what is essentially essentially mana, like your regency that you you gain each round. In the same way that you get tax money from your provinces, you also gain divine essence from the land that is funneled to you because of your bloodline. And then you spend that in order to uh, make actions happen. I guess you spend it in the same way that uh, in a, a lot of other games, like... Um, not role-playing games, but almost like board games, like territory control games, um, where you need to spend, you know, like currency or mm-hmm. um, uh, some other resource. Yeah, and I think you know having the having tracked down the second edition books and playing out of those, and then playing out of sort of an updated conversion that um, is built more around fifth edition skills, uh, as well as adding new skills to fifth edition. Um, works right but it's still a little clunky like i wouldn't call it the easiest like realm management system in the world yeah i mean it it might honestly be even easier just to take the idea of it and sort of build a simpler one on top of whatever system you're using like if you're playing dungeon world right um it would probably be easier just to like take the actions that you can do take the associated costs and make a playbook yeah yeah i think that'd probably be a lot easier Mm -hmm. um because the original system is so embedded in the mechanics of second edition right right um blood abilities can also be a problem uh you you probably need to layer those over like the existing classes in your system um they kind of have to be like 
additional abilities that you unlock. Yeah. Uh, do you remember in our most recent plot hooks episode, uh, we talked about a campaign where everyone would be like a demigod. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we were thinking maybe you sort of like take different domains, right. like 5e domains, and everyone gets assigned one or something like that. I think it's probably easy enough to take the cleric class or, you know, take whatever divine abilities are in whatever game you're playing and sort of like put them into a random table. Yeah, yeah. And then you just sort of roll and see what happens. Because that, that's a big deal in Birthright is it's quite possible for you to get useless abilities or amazing abilities. Yeah, there, there are an awful lot of D100 rolls that are unmodified. Yeah. <laughs> so you can end up in wildly different power levels too within a party. Uh, frankly, I think one of the easiest ways to do this is to take a territory control game that you enjoy, like Risk or Diplomacy, uh, use those mechanics to represent the realm aspects, and add role-playing on top of it. Yeah, I like that idea. You know, um, instead of like starting in Australia and expanding to Indonesia and then the mainland, um, well, I don't know. Can you take over Papua New Guinea? Like, how do people in Indonesia feel about your rule? Right. Are they loyal? Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> if not, the army isn't going to be able to move. Right. <laughs> Probably want to print up a new board, though. That's, that's going to be a little bit different game. <laughs> Uh, and then another adaptation that we're actually playing with is rather than every player being the regent of a separate country, we all share rulership of one country. Yeah, we're a ruling council mm-hmm. of a nation. It's complicated, um, but I th- I think it works well because we, because we have the understanding that like we all sort of need to agree on a thing or at least there's a vote. Uh, in order to figure out what action the country will take as a whole, but we all have our different spheres of influence. Yeah, I think it's the only way that we can really play with seven players. Uh, If we all had seven different nations, I think there would be too many NPCs running around. I'm just the the Baron of Gore. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Easy. (laughs) Uh, There there would just be too many running around to really be practical. So I think um, at least cutting down the number of nations involved is is a good approach if you have a larger group. So normally we ask the question in our conclusion, would you play this? So Ishan, I will ask you, would you play second edition Birthright? Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's a complicated question. Uh, I I would. And I would usually say no to a second edition game on, unless it's in a setting that I really like. I'd play a Dark Sun game. I'd play a Planescape game. And then Birthright is really the only one, other one I think that I can think of where I'd be like, yeah, I'll deal with those rules. Mm-hmm. So I'm the exact opposite. There's not a single setting that I loved so much that I would go back to second edition. Oh, for. really? So I, none of them will not work with fifth edition. So I'm not going back. <laughs> uh, but I would say uh, probably would not play this in person, would play it via play by post. Uh, oh, interesting. This mm-hmm. game is built for play by post it feels like uh and i know like you know 1995 that was not the most popular way of gaming but it really does lend itself because there can be a lot of interaction with npcs where the players are not directly involved with each other that can happen simultaneously um, and then you can kind of true up the end of the round uh as needed yeah because it also gets complicated when someone misses a session just because of real life stuff yeah Sort of like, uh, well, do you get those turns? Because the action economy is so important right. that you kind of lag behind. Yeah, normally we just kind of say, oh, well, you didn't gain any, you know, you just kind of were in the background and it's fine, just move on. Uh, you didn't get to influence the story. But in this case, not having those turns actually gives you a huge advantage for not having taken any risk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not having wasted any turns, not having had any random events or had to pay taxes. So I think the answer is, yeah, we would both play this, but probably in different mediums. Yeah, I'd like to see it removed from the mechanics of second edition. And we, we've seen that a bit with some of these ports, but I would love to see the ideas of the setting uh, played out in maybe even like not D&D at all. You know, any other kind of uh, system that can run fantasy. Mm-hmm. It Actually, I think a port to Warhammer Fantasy would be really cool. Oh dear, the card, the card one or the second edition one? 
the second edition one. Okay. Um, well, oh, and what if? Yeah, they're all psyker abilities. Mm. Yeah, good luck. Oh, dear lord. <laughs> all right, do you hear that, Ishan? Um, that is a gate opening to the warp and swallowing my entire court. Now I have to build another castle. <laughs> Time to build a new regent. So let's move on to the character creation forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So this week, we are building Rove Manslayer. Yes, I pronounced that correctly. Rove with a V, Manslayer. Yeah, it will not look like that in the title of this episode. It will look like it has a B and a lot of H's. Just go with it. So Rove is a powerful elven onche that rules the province of... Wait for it. Rove. Oh, okay. He hates humans. Imagine that. Uh, because they despoil the land. And 2,000 years ago, he served Azrai to help destroy them. Now, when most elves defected during the Battle of Mount Deismar and said, Oh, no, it turns out uh, you're an evil person. You tricked us. Mm-hmm. Let's fight with the good guys. Rove was like, What are you talking yeah, about? Double down. Yeah. Evil's great. Yeah. Evil kills humans. Evil wins. <laughs> Except it didn't. So, since he was basically standing pretty much next to Azrai when everything exploded, he absorbed a great deal of power. And he got statted out in the 1995 splat book Blood Enemies, Abominations of Cerulea, where it turns out he is a 33rd level multi-classed fighter wizard. Uh, only 31st. He's fighter 16, wizard oh, 15. Oh, sorry. <laughs> he's got two attacks per round. He's got 7th level spells. So, you know, he's an epic character. Yeah, he doesn't afraid of anything. No, no, not at all. Certainly not our characters in our game. So, what's the build? It is Fighter 1, Hunter Ranger 5, Abjuration Wizard 14. Oh, I like this. This is really simple and elegant. Yeah, we could have gone Eldritch Knight, but I I really like the Ranger abilities here, because, you know, Mm -hmm. he really hates humans. Yeah, so let's... uh, Fighter, real quick, gets you heavy armor, martial weapons, and a fighting style. Yeah, it's important to note that, like, in his stat block, he is... I mean, he's thousands of years old he's very wealthy he's got awesome gear mm-hmm. you know like a plus three shield plus four plate mail like a crazy weapon uh and a and a longbow but he's got to be able to wear that plate mail right <laughs> so he needs he needs that armor proficiency and yeah. also like keep in mind he leads a very small nation of very very bloodthirsty elves uh, all of which are also high level. <laughs> yeah. So they don't die very often anymore. <laughs> uh, from Ranger, he'll get another fighting style. He'll get Natural Explorer and two favorite enemies, uh, humans. Humans and, and goblins. Half-elves. I don't know how he feels about half-elves. Okay, that's fine. I accept. Either one works, but he did hate goblins first. Well, that's fair. He I- He sided with humans to kill the goblins and then decided... Humans are worse than goblins. Uh, yeah, I mean, e- either way, I think that's up to interpretation. Does he like half-elves for being half-elven, or does he hate them for being half-human? In Birthright, uh, half-elves specifically, elves view half-elves as elves, but we don't know how Rove feels right. because I, he's I a like, racist. Yeah, I feel like he'd be reactionary <laughs> on that one, yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so the favorite enemy, then you also get the Horde Breaker ability. I like that because to Rove... All humans are are part of the, the rabble, right? right? It's always a horde of humans because he's always like mowing down like poor peasants, right? Yeah, <laughs> Br- briefly trained militiamen, right? <laughs> so briefly, uh, and then obviously he gets the hunter's mark spell, which uh, he will not hesitate to put on a human. Yeah, you get a you know first and second level ranger spells, which which to me just sort of feels like the normal elf abilities of a second edition elf. Yeah, yeah. And then 14 levels of Abjurer, 
So you're going to get Arcane Ward, which will actually absorb a fair bit of damage because you've got quite a few wizard levels. And he's going to be good at spell combat because he gets bonuses to dispel magic and uh, to counter spell. And I I would lobby a GM, and as a GM I would certainly allow those bonuses to apply to things like um, dispel realm magic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because his, his realm, Rove, is also severely magically... Uh, guarded yeah it's got wards all over it right um and you know occasionally he just attacks an entire province next door right with one spell yeah yeah <laughs> uh, at level 14 he'll get resistance to damage versus spells and he'll be rocking seventh level wizard spells and eighth level spell slots which means he casts more seventh level wizard spells than any other seventh level wizard spell caster because he you know can't do anything with that eighth level slot he doesn't know anything Maybe he just uh, upcasts all his magic missiles. Maybe. Yeah. Or hurricane. Nope. Or earthquake. Nope. Or delayed blast. Delayed nope. blast fireball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's. I don't know. I think it's seventh actually. Okay. But it's it's better when you upcast it. Uh, can you upcast disintegrate or is it just plain old disintegrate? I don't think you need to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, for race here, I mean, canonically, he's an elf, right? But No, if, he's an elf. <laughs> okay, but if you if you read his uh, his description, his, the tainted blood has, guess what, turned his skin gray, uh, and he has trouble looking at the light. Oh, you think he might be a drow? Uh, I think he ba- they basically turned him into a drow, uh, so I think he can pick drow if you want. That seems fair, and it's an elf sub Still an elf, yeah. So. For leveling order, start at Fighter 1 so that you get that heavy armor proficiency. Then go Wizard 1 so that you can actually cast some spells. Then to Ranger 3 to nab a Horde Breaker, which will help to offset the fact that you're not getting extra attack until much later. Then I would say Wizard 5 just for um, the iconic Wizard spells. Ranger 5 for extra attack, and then finish out Wizard. And that's Rove Manslayer. So before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. And do not forget about the new reward at the $300 level. We're, I don't know, maybe $70 away from that, so we're not too far. I'm going to have to start reading up on Forgotten Realms. Yeah, me too. And if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of the rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. We also have a five-star review to read this week. Ishan, take it away. This is Good Table Stories and Breakdowns of 5e Content by Observer138. Five stars. I listen to a lot of podcasts about tabletop gaming, but this is the only one I keep up with on D&D 5e. I've largely moved away from big-name games into a world of small-press indie titles the last few years. But sometimes you just crave a taste of that D20 goodness, and this show delivers. From breakdowns and discussions on the newest content put out by Wizards of the Coast to the custom character concepts they work out in the Character Creation Forge, there's bound to be something to get your 5e fix. But more than any of that, I love the campaign recap segment. If that's all there was to the show, it would still be well worth a listen. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, thank you, Observer. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We have finally gotten our hands on a hard copy of Fantasy Flight Games' Genesis System. And in the Character Creation Forge? Mm, We're going to be skipping that because we are spending the entire episode reviewing Genesis for you. Well, that's it for episode 128 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 